Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. You're listening to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. This week, Ireland's financial crisis. We look at the situation both in Ireland and the potential fallout for Portugal and Spain. But first to Asia and the escalation in military tensions between North and South Korea following the North's deadly bombardment of a South Korean island. In the aftermath of the attack, the Americans have dispatched an aircraft carrier to the region and the South Korean defence ministers resigned. Joining me in the studio is John Aglianby, the FT's London-based Asia editor. Before we discuss the situation, John, let's just listen to Christian Oliver, who's in Seoul, and he was talking about public opinion in South Korea following the attacks. It's very hard to sort of talk about public opinion in in Korea because although the Koreans themselves joke about themselves as being a a herd and having herd behaviour, on issues like North Korea, there's just a multitude of different opinions. The older generation certainly have a more sort of bellicose attitude towards the North. A lot of parliamentarians have been attacking the defence minister, saying that we should have fought back. That's also the opinion in the, the, the conservative press. However, there's also a lot of public opinion that realises how dangerous this is, that realises the importance of the economy here, that realises the calculated game. That said... The general public mood over this is a bit different from the sinking of a warship in March. At that time, the country was awash with conspiracy theories that really the North Koreans couldn't have done this to us. They're our brothers. In this case, it cannot be doubted that it's a very calculated North Korean attack and an attack against what were known to be civilian targets, people's homes. And because of that, I think it's had a far more shocking impact in some ways on the public level than the than the warship. When we look at North Korea, it's always sensible to look at it first from what they're doing domestically. And their first priority is always the message that they're sending to their own military and political elites. So I think our number one assumption has to take the idea that this is something to do with the succession, that Kim Jong-il, the dictator is passing power over to his third son, Kim Jong-un. To do that, he's building him political capital with a series of victories against the South. That was Christian Oliver in Seoul. Now, uh, John, with me here in the studio, we heard about how the South Koreans are reacting, but of course this is a major international security issue. How are the Americans dealing with it and how are the Chinese dealing with it? The big problem for everyone is that no one quite knows what to do with North Korea. The Americans can only do so much. They've sent this carrier group with George Washington to the Yellow Sea for these war games that have previously been put on hold. And there's not much more they can do other than show force in the region. They're not exactly going to launch any sort of attack anytime soon because the reaction from North Korea with a million-man army and nuclear weapons only 31 miles from Seoul is going to be just too much to bear. So South Korea and the United States have got their hands tied. Really, everyone's looking to Beijing now and wondering just what is Beijing going to do to North Korea. And Wen Jiabao's 
initial reaction was really not very promising for anyone wanting Kim Jong-il to stand down. I mean, Wen Jiabao described the situation as grim and complicated. The Chinese Prime Minister. Yes, exactly. But they haven't really gone anywhere beyond that. And earlier this summer, they welcomed Kim Jong-il on an official visit to China. And so clearly, they're very much keen to support him, prop him up, backing his succession plan. So I don't see the Chinese reigning North Korea in any way, shape or form anytime soon. And that means the six-party talks that everyone is sort of clinging on to by their fingernails is likely to start again anytime soon. And as for realising dividends, I think that's a bit of a pipe dream. And the six-party talks you refer to are, of course, meant to be an international cooperative effort with both China and the US taking part to try and resolve the situation in a kind of amicable way. But... Is it now increasingly evident, do you think, that China and America are thinking about this very differently? As we saw from Barack Obama's recent visit to Asia, he's very keen to prop up, support, reinforce the alliances the United States has in the region. China, for the last few years, has been very much through investment and other means, building alliances, building links in the region. So it's a cat of mouse between the two major powers involved in this as to how much influence they can bring to bear in the region. And that means on North Korea. But no one really quite knows what China wants to do vis-a-vis North Korea. It's a problem that they feel they can't let go of, because that would be massive loss of face, massive defeat for them. Whereas at the same time, they don't feel they can clearly support any sort of attack on South Korea. So everyone at the moment appears to be in a quasi limbo of what can we do about Kim Jong-il? Perhaps the Chinese are hoping that with the passing to his son, Kim Jong-un, things will improve as far as global diplomacy and tensions on the peninsula are concerned. But everything we're hearing at the moment suggests that China's is scratching its head as much as anyone else for its own domestic and regional purposes as anyone else. Finally, I mean, to put it bluntly, how, how scared should we be? I mean, is this a situation that is in danger of spiralling out of control and actually going into a major war? Or is this just one of a series of bizarre and slightly kind of sinister North Korean provocations that one's seen over the years? Having spent many years in Asia, I believe that the conspiracy theories are rarely true and that I don't believe this is the build-up to something more serious. I believe it's very much, as Christian was saying in his clip, um, issues about the succession and for domestic purposes rather than any massive region-wide attack. And so I don't believe that we need to be that scared. People I've spoken to in Seoul say, yes, it's definitely a ratcheting up of the situation, but I don't think anyone there actually believes there's going to be any major attack anytime soon. It's more a case of sort of oscillating within boundaries of the status quo. John Aglianby, thank you very much indeed. Now to our second topic for today, Ireland and its debt crisis. Joining me on the line is John O'Doherty, who's an FT correspondent currently in Ireland. John, they've been negotiating with, with the IMF. How close are they to agreeing a deal, the Irish government, the IMF and the European Union? Well, Gideon, while an agreement has in principle been reached, much of the details are only going to be ironed out in the coming weeks. There's still some uncertainty as to the precise size of the package. And even as late as, as Monday, the Irish finance minister, Brian Lanahan, was saying, no, 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 the package would be nowhere near the, the sort of 70 to 80 billion euro range that some people have been suggesting. But subsequently, it emerged later in the day that it's probably going to be about 80 or 90 billion euro in aid, 
contributed by a combination of the IMF and the European Financial Stability Mechanism, with about seven or eight million coming from the UK. So precise amounts remain to be determined, and, and that's going to, to come out over the next couple of weeks. But meanwhile, the Irish government is having to press ahead with even more cuts in, in government spending. They've already gone through a pretty painful round. What's the latest? The austerity package that was outlined yesterday is a four-year plan, and it's fairly brutal. The government is aiming to take €15 billion in savings over the next four years from 2011 to 2014, and €10 billion of that is going to come from cuts in spending, and €5 billion is going to come in new taxes. The corporate tax rate, which is a sort of totemic issue for most of the Irish political parties, is going to stay at 12.5%. There was some pressure from France and Germany to, to kind of raise that a little bit, but that was not touched in the austerity package. But it will involve real pain for ordinary Irish people. The basic minimum wage in Ireland at present is €8.65. That's going to be cut to €7.65. Income tax is going to go up as well by about €1.9 billion. The tax-free allowance on earnings is going to be reduced from about €18,000 to €15,000 or €18,300 to €15,300. So that's going to bring a lot more people into the tax net. So it's quite a brutal series of cuts. And looking rather closely at them, many of these cuts are quite regressive and socially VAT, by definition, is um, a tax on consumption. And what's all this doing to the real economy or is anticipated to do to the real economy in terms of growth, unemployment? Well, there are some very optimistic growth forecasts in this plan. They're aiming at about one and three quarter percent growth next year, three and a quarter percent growth in 2012, three percent in 2013 and two and three quarters percent in 2014. And many commentators are saying, well, really, given the, the scale of the cuts that are being laid out, these forecasts are just far too optimistic. And the Irish economy is likely to continue to shrink while this austerity package is implemented. So what's this doing to politics? Are we seeing the rise of non-mainstream parties, uh, a, re- a reaction against the political establishment? There's been a reaction already this week, Gideon. As we speak here today on, on Thursday, voters in Donegal, which is the county, the little sliver of land in the Republic of Ireland that pokes out into the, in the northwest corner, they're going to the polls in a by-election. I was up there on Tuesday talking to voters, and there's a very strong chance that Sinn Féin, which is a radical socialist and nationalist party, is going to win the vote and beat Fianna Fáil, which is the incumbent governing party. Now, Sinn Féin have never won a seat in that part of the country in the modern era. So that would be very, very upsetting to the government. So that's already happening. The Green Party, which is Fianna Fáil's own coalition partners, have indicated that they will pull out of government sometime in January after the budget is passed. And that's a headache for Fianna Fáil as well. They're also, they have a very slim majority at present. And if they lose this by-election in Donegal, that's a headache. Um, Two independent deputies in the Irish Parliament are also beginning to waver in terms of their support, saying that they might not pass the budget. So the budget is going to be the next big issue for politics. And that really does need to go through. But there is an outside chance that it mightn't. And um, in this respect, all eyes will be turning to Fine Gael, which is the other, the main opposition party. Last question, John. I mean, it's obviously a very painful economic and political period. But with this bailout, do people 
at least confident that, OK, they've dealt with the problem now? Or is there fears that there might be even more nasties lurking out there in the banks? Those nasties are still there. And what I suppose has to be remembered about this uh, bailout package is that there's no debt rescheduling involved in it at all. It is simply an extension of liquidity to, to the Irish banking system. And it doesn't address the underlying solvency of the banks and the Irish government has con- continued to fully guarantee bonds in Irish banks. And that's still causing a lot of worries for investors. So it- it's not even clear that this bailout package and this austerity package may even work. Today, there's been a number of negative signals already. LCH Clearnet um, has raised the margin it requires Irish banks to pay to use Irish government bonds as collateral. So that means that Irish banks are in a worse position today than they were last week. And so they're even more dependent on the European Central Bank now after this bailout. Bond yields are still continuing to rise. They're about 9% this morning. And S&P has downgraded Irish bonds. So there's a lot of investor concern that the government is still taking on too much debt and that this is fundamentally a solvency problem rather than a liquidity problem. And the signs of contagion show no signs of abating. Yields on Spanish debt have pushed up to 5%. Portuguese bond yields continue to rise. So the package so far has really neither instilled confidence in international investors, nor has it seems to instill um, confidence in the Irish economy. So it's not entirely clear that it will work. We won't know for sure for another few weeks or months. John O'Doherty in Ireland, thank you very much indeed. Now, John mentions this threat of contagion to uh, Spain, Portugal and perhaps even other members of the European Union. So after speaking to him, I called Madrid and spoke to the FT's bureau chief there, Victor Mallet, and asked him if the Spanish and Portuguese were worried. I think they're very worried, especially in Portugal, where the budget deficit, instead of getting smaller as it's supposed to do as a result of austerity, has actually been getting bigger. Um, but they're also worried in Spain, where the budget has actually, the deficit has actually been shrinking. There's a general fear of contagion, which is entirely justified given the, the way the markets are behaving. The problem, in a sense, is that the market panic is kind of self, self-fulfilling in the sense that the worse things get in the markets, the more difficult the future looks for Spain because it's more difficult for them to raise money and therefore people don't want to lend them money and you get this kind of vicious circle of, 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 um, of panic. Uh, but I would say that at the moment there's much more feeling that Portugal might well need a rescue very soon in the way that Ireland had to go to the European Union and, and the International Monetary Fund, but that for Spain that really is a, a more unlikely prospect given the, the fundamental size and actually, to be honest, the strengths of the Spanish economy. And has this sort of crept up on them or has it come as a very nasty surprise? Because until a few weeks ago, Ireland seemed okay. So are they suddenly thinking, you know, where's this come from? Yes, I think that's right. I mean, you know, a year ago, it was virtually inconceivable that the euro would break up. And now people are talking about it as a, as a, as a real possibility, albeit one that they don't want to see happen and still think is, is fairly unlikely. It has gone in sort of slightly odd phases. In the early summer, in May, um, there was a great panic about Spain, and there was a feeling that Spain really was on the ropes. And in fact, the 750 billion euro rescue plan that came very shortly after the Greek rescue was really aimed at Spain and Portugal more than at Ireland. At that time, the feeling was that Ireland had done a great job of austerity, but that the Spanish budget deficit was looking a bit out of control, and uh, you know the government wasn't really convinced about the need to do the things that the market said it needed to do in terms of 
cost-cutting and so on. But then, in the middle of the summer and the late summer, really the markets relaxed. You know, the premiums for, for Spanish bonds over German bunds declined sharply, which meant that you know, the risk was considered to be lower for Spain. And in fact, all the you know, Eurozone economies, the peripheral Eurozone economies benefited, but particularly Spain, which ended up being rated really alongside Italy in terms of its dangers or the risks of, of, of a default. And then we had this very sudden Ireland scenario, which arose essentially from the Germans deciding that in the future, private sector bondholders, if you like, rather than, than governments would be on the hook for default. Uh, and that really set the panic going in Ireland, plus the banking situation in Ireland was much worse than previously thought. So now we're, we're back with Spain still much safer than, than Portugal, Ireland and Greece, but sufficiently risky to, to cause concern in the market, especially given the size of its economy, which would make a rescue with the, the current funds available extremely difficult and, of course, threaten the whole integrity of the eurozone. Okay, so so final question then. This has kind of been sprung on the governments of Spain and Portugal. Do they know what to do? I mean, is there a sense that there's a coherent reaction being framed or are they just kind of rabbits in the headlights of the markets? I think it's really tough. The Spanish policy has been to say, look, we, we have enough austerity because one of the problems is that the, the markets, economists, investors, call them what you like, have realized that it's no good simply asking for more and more austerity. After all, Alan did lots of austerity. Spain has done lots of austerity. And to do more actually threatens to crush the economy, to stop growth in its tracks, even though it's, it's barely happening at all anyway, to stop growth in its tracks, which then makes actually debt repayments even more difficult. So the, having demanded more austerity, the markets are saying, well, actually, maybe more austerity isn't a good idea. The Spanish and the Portuguese have both said, look, we're absolutely committed to the austerity plans we have. At the moment, we don't think anything further is required. But if the markets demand something, if it becomes impossible, we, we probably will do something. But we think it's wiser simply to be absolutely rigid about sticking to what we've agreed, which essentially are, are very drastic cost cuts, very drastic deficit reductions, which in some ways take them beyond what's happening in Britain, for example. Uh, the problem for Portugal is that the actual outcome of its austerity plan so far hasn't produced the necessary financial results. In Spain, on the other hand, it does seem to have produced results. In other words, the deficit actually is shrinking. So the, there is a difference there, which is why, you know, one reason why the focus is very much on Portugal now. That was Victor Mallet in Madrid. And that's it for this week. Thanks to John Aglianby in the studio in London, to Christian Oliver in Seoul, Victor Mallet in Madrid, and John O'Doherty in Ireland. World Weekly was produced by LJ Filatrani. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.